welcome back to Chatting in the Stacks with me, Chloe Austin. This episode, I'm joined by the fantastic Kaya Birch Skerritt. Kaya is a member of Mother Tongues, which is an interdisciplinary and research-led project which applies decolonial, feminist and queer theory to explorations of language and identity. Kaya is also a volunteer here at the Stuart Hall Library, where she's been working on expanding and activating our zine collection, skills she's already been honing during her time at the Feminist Library. Alongside all this, Kaya is studying for a degree in psychosocial studies at Birkbeck, University of London. I was really intrigued to find out how Kaya combines her work with zines and her university research. Kaya brought two items from the collection to discuss, a zine by Shotcom Seamstress and a copy of Revelation Journal, which is like a portal back to turn of the millennium black British culture. So without further ado, let's get on with the chat. So my first question to you is, what made you want to volunteer at the library? Mm. I am, um, so I found out about Innova through a friend who was actually a curator or trainee before you, Priya. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> when we were both at Barbican. Um, and so I went along to some of the research networks and the reading groups, and I just found it so exciting. Um, and I didn't know that there was a, a arts institute that like focused on art from people of colour and from those cultural backgrounds and so it immediately drew me in because it like encapsulated so many areas of my interest from like arts but also because I'm doing like a social science degree um yeah there were so many areas of interest that I wanted to get involved um and I've done some work with other libraries and archives and so I wanted to get like more hands-on with it um and I think it's really important to preserve um, movements like the Black Arts Movement because not many other institutions like prioritise those areas of art. And so to have a place like Innova and the Stuart Hall Library is really like, essential in making sure that we do like, preserve those parts of British history, those parts that like, yeah. often aren't really spoken about. Yeah, definitely. And I think recently they're becoming more mainstream and a little more mainstream yeah. but you've seen them more around but I think Innova's been in the background for years. Right yeah certain buzzwords start getting thrown around in like other institutions mm. and it's not always as authentic as it could be but Innova yeah like you said has been around from like just after the Black Arts Movement and have really like prioritised that space that's really needed. So mm. It's really cool to like be able to work with the materials and work with other people and like preserve that. Fantastic. So while you've been at the library, am I right in saying your main sort of focus has been on the zine collection? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So can you tell us about the history of Innova's yeah. zine collection, where it's come from, where it's going? So it started, well, so there was a call out put on Innova's blog in September of 2010. Um, and so a lot of artists responded to that and donated a lot of their, either their own zines or zines from their collections. And so it's kind of continued in that kind of donating style, which is really nice. And it makes the collection really personal because oftentimes people will donate from their own collections, which is really nice. Um, and we see like a lot of... Um, 
so not only artists will donate, but like student unions. There's a big movement in student unions um, contributing to zine making. So it's kind of um, continued from that. And the main focus of the collection is around Innovus focus on cultural difference, um, gender, race, critical theory, that kind of stuff. Um, and again, you'll see that a lot of the collection really focuses on um, African and Asian artists and creators in general, which is really nice. Yeah, and just this is kind of a question that I've just thought of as we're speaking. Mm. But I just thought it's a really nice connection between what you were talking about with the black arts movement, especially in mm. the 80s, that was very DIY, yeah. like very do-it-yourself, and our zine collection, because you know the nature of zines is that it is, is self-publishing. Yeah, that's really exciting, because you often... It's an opportunity to like hear from people who you might not otherwise hear from in like mainstream outlets. So you get such a variety of of people, but also like narratives as well. Like there's so much to find out about, which um yeah is really great. Like with the student unions, they're talking a lot about currently like um sexual violence on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, decolonizing the curriculum like there's so much in our collection right now that's like speaking on those topics that are so relevant at the moment and like the way that they're captured in scenes is like so unfiltered it's so exciting um yeah like even at my university I was in the library actually like a couple weeks ago and I saw their zine up on the display and I like nabbed it quickly to bring it into (laughs) the collection yeah even like I was at um there was like my friends they um go to art school at UAL and one of my friends she had a party um at her place where she lives with loads of um artists like displaying their work and there are these two guys who like had created a zine and I had to like nab that too and just like just every chance I get like collecting zines from like loads of different places is really great mm. yeah great can you tell us a bit more about the different types of zines that we have in the collection yeah. you kind of you know, so for those who don't know, Kaya's written a blog post all about zines, so we're just going to delve a bit more into some of the yeah. stuff Yeah, so the majority of the zines in the collection are per zines, which it stands for personal zines, um, and they mostly compromise of um, an author's personal account of their own life experience, or even just like their opinions on things, and most of the topics that per zines tend to... Um, encapsulate are things like race, uh, sexuality, um, political climate, so events that are happening around that. We have a really amazing zine actually in the collection that's about migration and immigration um, and it's written by uh, migrants who are part of this community group um, speaking about their experience but they also have like a CD within it and it has a mixtape so they've oh, wow. all, yeah, like they all recorded a bunch of songs that they wrote. Um, and it contains like their mixtape. So I'd say that the main bulk is per zines, um, but then we also have art zines. Mm. So they kind of tend to touch on similar topics, but obviously through art, um, through a variety of styles as well. And then there are some poetry zines, and then there are also some educational zines, actually. I think there's, yeah, we're getting a lot more of those. Um, and they, they're like used for research, I suppose, which is really cool for me as someone who like is interested in both arts, but also doing a degree. Like mm. I'm using, like whenever I come here, 
I like flick through zines and like there's just so much to learn about um, through them and a lot of them are made for that purpose of educating which is really exciting as well but yeah they tend to because zines are so DIY and they're like self-driven I suppose they're quite flexible and they're not very defined um, so you tend to see that a lot of different categories of scenes do tend to like mix together um, and the lines become really blurred which is really nice. Mm. And can you tell us a bit more about zine making from the global south? Yes. Yeah so um, it's really exciting actually um, a lot of the zines um, in, in the global south are used as creative outlets but also um, as political forums because what's so great about zines is they are created in like the underground scenes so they're not um it's very hard to censor them because they tend to navigate in different circles so um a lot of the zines in the global south are used to um discuss um oppressions that are being faced um but also to create ways of resistance um and it's like i said it because it's diy it's so accessible um, currently there's quite a big scene in South Africa um, mm. which I've been trying to delve into which is quite exciting but some zines that I'm trying to look out for um, currently in Africa there's a lot of conversation um, surrounding climate change mm. and specifically mixing the commentary around climate change with Afrofuturism mm. um, and speculative fiction through um, a black feminist narration and I'm really interested to try and see if that literary scene has crossed over into like the scene making scene it's so hard to say that zine making scene <laughs> yeah well I always have an issue with um whether it's zine or zine and every time zine. I go to say it I have to think magazine it's magazine yeah, zine. I mean I suppose you can say it however you want but yeah it yeah it's kind of like magazine but it's like the cooler mm. yeah um yeah I'd be really interested to look into zines from the global south that are speaking about like the ecological crisis because that conversation we tend to hear about it a lot from people in like the global north mm -hmm. and we certain narratives tend to be um, minimized which for me is very frustrating especially when those who are really facing and feeling the effects of climate change are the ones in like the global south mm -hmm. so that's something that I really want to try and incorporate even more into the collection. Yeah, that's definitely true. There's definitely almost like this myth that like people in the global south don't know about climate change when yeah. in fact they are the ones who are hit first by it. Exactly. So they experience it firsthand. Yeah. And even like conversations surrounding how climate change has come about are often really linked in like imperialism and colonialism. Mm. And these are the people who know that firsthand. Um, yeah, so yeah. I think that'd be really exciting to try and like locate those. Yeah, and it really links to the whole idea that because zines are this DIY form, you're mm. telling your own story. So it's all about hearing from voices that are less heard exactly. in yeah. mainstream publication. Yeah. So moving on a little bit, still keeping with the zines. Um, can you tell us how you kind of use how the zines kind of get incorporated into your sort of studying? Because as I said, yeah. you're studying for a psychosocial studies degree. Um, yeah, so psychosocial studies is quite a new field of study compared to psychology and sociology. It emerged out of the 90s um, and takes an interdisciplinary approach 
and it draws from like the arts, um, obviously psychology and sociology, but also post-colonial theory, queer and feminist theory. Um, and it mainly challenges psychology and sociology as it argues that psychological issues um, and a person's subjectivity can't be viewed or understood separately from um, your cultural, social and historical context. So like in the here and now, but also historically. Um, um, and through that approach, it allows us to understand that social and cultural contexts are shaped by psychological processes and intersubjective relations, which sounds really mm. jargony <laughs> and quite hard to comprehend. Yeah. Um, but it allows me to approach scenes as research materials, um, as because they're quite personal accounts. Um, for me, they're reflexive accounts that speak to the author's subjectivity. And because a lot of them touch on issues like um, sexuality, class, race, cultural difference, um, it really allows me to see how uh, individual subjectivity is shaped by social climates. Um, and it kind of, through zines, I'm able to explore how, yeah, how social, um, cultural context can shape um, a person's psychological um, makeup and being, um, and vice versa. So I kind of, yeah, in a way, I look at, yeah, zines as, like, these materials to, like, understand, um, like, the intimate, like, makeup of people through, like, social interaction, I think. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Say, it sounds like zines are a really important source of yeah. material. It's like you research. can you can look at it through an artistic lens, which is really important, but then you can also look at it through like a social science lens. And you, there's so much to draw from it. Mm. Which, yeah, I think in like the academy, it's really hard to get such personal accounts, especially when they are in like really scientific environments. People aren't always that willing to be as vulnerable and open which is so understandable but yeah through zines there's just so much to draw from them which is so interesting really mm. exciting great so are there any other ways that your interest in art impacts your research yeah um i think especially through being surrounded by the um, Stuart Paul library's collection i i'm able to see a lot of myself within the collection um, and like I was saying before in academic environments it can be quite intimidating to reflect on yourself through the the text that you read and because psychosocial studies is very much interested in a research of being reflexive and really like looking back on who they are and the work that they do I find that I'm very, when I'm in various environments, I'm constantly thinking of myself in these places and how like one another shapes each other. And so I feel like through art, it allows me to access, like I said, materials that you wouldn't find in the um, academy and to look at them through like a social science lens and to understand so much more about like the people who are creating these things and, and and understand myself as well. So I would say, yeah, that through working with so many different archives and collections, art has really enabled me to to 
prioritise it as like um, a research material and not just something for aesthetic pleasure. Mm. Cool. So, yeah, could you tell us about the blog posts that you've written? Like, yeah. you kind of touched on already and how the resources in the library influenced mm. what you wrote about. Yeah, so I started writing the blog post to kind of reflect on my experience as a volunteer here. Um, and one of the first main projects that I worked on was we had um, an event um, and so I picked out some zines mm. to display um, and so I wrote a bit about that um, process and then I also wrote a bit about um, my experience cataloguing the zine collection but in terms of like how um, the artists have um, shaped how I what I've written about and what I've um, looked into it's quite interesting because with zines a lot of the times although um, an artist will be central to like the zine that they've produced a lot of the times some zines kind of stand for themselves and the artist um, doesn't really place himself as central to that so I guess it's, I kind of approach it a bit differently to how I would if I was working with like exhibition catalogues where like the artist is like completely central to that piece of work, um, which has been really interesting for me to kind of think about like the, the role of like the artist, because I think that really varies differently in zine making to how it does in like an exhibition. So I think it's really enabled me to really widen my understanding of the role of the artist and and what they produce which has been really eye-opening for me yeah but I'm I feel like I'm still in the process of um writing the blog post I want to add a bit more to it because I've just recently done my talk my show and tell for the zine so I'd really like to kind of write about that as well yeah. and incorporate that it's really interesting what you say about how the artist is taking your back seat because often mm. we think about you know, I think in, in Western culture, at least, the artist is always seen as right. such an important figure. Yeah. And I think maybe in zines, the idea is kind of taking a mm. more important role. Yeah. I suppose a lot of people, when they are creating zines, they do it in their own personal space. And it's kind of just like an extension of yourself, mm. of what you're thinking that day or like something that's been on your mind. And so I think it is a much more like free-flowing process. There's not as many rigid structures and expectations. Mm. And can you tell us a bit about your talk that you gave? So I ran um, a show and tell, which was really exciting. Um, so I created a display out front and I picked some zines that I thought really represented Innova's focus. Um, so it was also in response to an event that was happening about community. Mm. So I was focusing as well on like the idea of community. Um, and so it was really great to, we had like a great turnout um, and it was really nice to just speak to people who also have an interest in zines. Um, and what was really nice is that a lot of people who came, it was like split between people who were familiar with Innova and then also some people who it was their first time um, coming and had just seen it on Facebook. So it was really nice to see people's reactions and like delve through um, our collection. Do you think that the zines bring in a sort of different audience to Innova? What? I think it's a bit of both 
there are some people, because obviously zines are quite historic in that they started in the 70s and they've kind of shifted form but also kind of maintained this. And when we think of zines, we think of this very specific like DIY, um, kind of underground, like linking it to the punk scene. Mm. So I think you definitely get some people who've who've come from that knowledge, but then there are also some people who really have a lot of interest in what Innova is about. Like for instance, one of the people who came to um, the show and tell, she just finished her PhD um, working on um, like the politics and history around um, a mixed race identity, mm. specifically linking it to um, the UK experience as well as the US experience and the ways in which they're similar but also really different. Um, so yeah, she's just finished her PhD doing that and she's now working on um, mediums that discuss race but also through arts and craft. Mm. And so obviously zines yeah. are like that <laughs> intersection, right? And so she came and we ended up having this really lovely discussion and like we exchanged like contacts. So you really do get all sorts of people but I think it definitely zines really do appeal to loads of different um people from like different interests which is really exciting yeah yeah i think it's really interesting you say that some people are coming from a background where they know like from the beginning of zines so mm. i remember i think my first sort of uh, experience of zines was from like an art making thing mm. in a gallery but you're right it does kind of go back to this history that's yeah. like very like diy 70s punk yeah yeah like my introduction to zines it was when i was back in college doing my a levels and mm. um, i was a part of the feminist society ah. and back then me and some of my friends we were really into riot girl oh, which is yes. yeah from the <laughs> 90s which is mm. feminist punk and they did a lot of diy um not only just in zines, but even in the music they were making and, and like posters and so much more. And so that's how I found out about zines. And then as a result, um, our feminist society actually made a zine. So it's just like there are so many different like um, alleyways into it, which is so, yeah, really exciting. And you can really see how different like times and different like subcultures really took their own like spin on zines and and the ways that they presented them mm, definitely mm. yeah. to prep for the podcast i asked to bring a few things yes. from the library that you wanted to highlight so what have you bought yeah so i first bought a zine from the collection um it's by shotgun seamstress who has a lot of other um, zines in the collection. But this specific issue is about money and capitalism. Um, it's from, so Shotgun Seamstress is a, a bunch of zines from the perspective of a black punk. Mm. Um, and so this scene specifically offers ways of combating um, consumerism and classism mm. in like really radical and creative ways. Um, and it really touches on how consumerism and capitalism especially hurt people of colour. Um, and what I really like about this issue is that although it's quite like capitalism sucks, right? It offers um, speculative futures of a world um, that isn't tainted by capitalism and what that could look like. And it kind of leaves you with, oh, things kind of suck at the moment, but we really could change things. And I was reading it and there was this quote that like really st uh, stood out to me 
Um, and it says, we have so much more potential as people than our potential to consume, mm. which for me just, I feel like I have to come back to that a lot because I think we're all really like vulnerable to consumerism because we all live it and it's, it's around all of us. And like, it does really like affect relationships, but also like the way that you relate to yourself. And it can feel really hard to see yourself outside of consumerism and like social media and this constant feeling like you need to accumulate more. And so it's just really nice to just come back to that and to come back to who you are away from all of that stuff that like clouds your mind. Um, and there's this really um, amazing but really sad um, story about um, this artist Alvin Baltrop. Um, he was a queer artist um, living in New York. And it speaks about, it was only after he died that um, value was given to his photography. And I think what it really speaks to is that a lot of black lives aren't valued, especially queer um, black lives. And we tend to see this pattern of it's only after someone is dead that they are deemed valuable, or like it's almost this fetish. Um, and so it's a really incredible account of his life and... I didn't even know about him, to be honest with you, before, but it's just, like, to learn something new about someone, but to also it's a very personal account. And I think specifically, like, queer artists have gone through so much historically, and so I feel like it's just really important to, to encounter things that have those kind of narratives in them. And it also has this really great um, spread on, like, songs that are about being broke, Oh. And I just, yeah, I relate. It's really nice. It's just, yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, it's just like a little positive twist as well. So I think yeah. this is such a great um, oh, part of the collection. I will have to read. Yeah. That. I'm just thinking of songs being broke. One of my fame, guilty pleasures is um, Rent the Musical. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, Ooh, I have friends. Yeah, I've, I've never actually seen it as a musical. I'm not sure if it's still running, but like I've seen the, um, the film version. Yeah. And they have a really good song that I remember I used to listen to a lot. Uh, that was about not being able to pay your rent uh, while I was at uni and had no money. I still have no money. It's me right now, my first year of uni. <laughs> exactly. Trying to get by. And it's such a good, such a good movie to watch when you don't have any money. And the characters are all these kind of like bohemian New York people. There's, to add that to my watch list. It's really amazing. It's set during the AIDS crisis. They've mm. got lots of like queer characters. They've got um, black characters as well. You know, people nice. of colour. And it's really fantastic, I'd recommend it. And there's one particular song on not being able to pay your rent, it's very relatable. Yeah. But there's so many things I want to say about what you've just said. So I make know. it So, <laughs> first of all, I think it is very difficult when you live to, to not live, uh, to ignore all of the marketing from society about mm. capitalism, is what yeah. I found recently. I've been trying to escape capitalism and if you don't go to any shops it works really well but mm. the minute you're anywhere where there's shops you realize just how geared towards selling you things yeah. uh, you know society is <laughs> it's quite scary how good they are at this mm, as well very it's, good. it's like there are so many like techniques and like oh it's just quite scary how mm. like it's as, as if like your mind is not like this private place it's like all these techniques to like lure you in yeah just, yeah. So I think everyone has to be kind to themselves as they're trying to oh, completely. You know, live yeah. a less capitalist life and have a different value system because it, mm. it is difficult and everything is set against you trying to persuade yeah. you to spend money but and to true. value your well, your to value yourself based off of 
enough of that. Mm. Yeah, in like a society where like capitalism prevails and wants to make you miserable, the most like mm. political, like revolutionary act is to be kind to yourself mm. in a system that's set up to do the opposite. Completely. And the other thing was on black consumerism, mm. especially, I think I've seen this on Instagram a lot recently, people posting about how in 2020 they want to see, um, you know, uh, black excellence not equaling black capitalism mm. because they feel like a lot of brands are piggybacking uh, piggybacking yeah piggy yeah piggybacking that's what I'm looking for <laughs> <laughs> on on these kind of like you know black power movements and you mm. know recently um, you know especially on Instagram and kind of using it as a way to sell things to black people to yeah. say you need this hair cream you need this oh skincare God. you need to be buying stuff from this brand to yeah. in order to be a you know fantastic black person yeah um yeah like movements so easily get co-opted mm. and like it's so easy to fall into that when you like associate so much self-worth with that and like like obviously we don't want to be like race traitors mm. but like yeah I think historically like I remember my uncle he came to Britain when he was 15 so he had lived quite a significant portion of his life in the Caribbean mm. and like when he came over here there was this strong association with to make it and to be successful you have to dress well and and you have to to buy all these things which on one hand completely makes sense because it's about survival in mm. in a really hostile environment but i think at the same time yeah consumerism really does get caught up with self-worth and like i think it's quite a dangerous line that we, we all really struggle mm. with but i think it's just about trying to like take a step back and like yeah not attach so much of our identity to it mm. yeah definitely yeah i think my grandmother came over when she was a bit older than mm. your uncle and she yeah it's always like you have to dress well because mm. people don't expect you to so right. in order to prove them wrong you mm. as a black person you have to have this like highly polished yeah uh, appearance that's just so a unattainable for all the mm. time and b like doesn't mean anything about my character <laughs> or what i can do who i am but yeah i think it's like slowly like generations having to like just rewire their brains to like not associate things that don't mean anything about who you are and to spend time with the people who matter the most um like they say spend money on experiences not mm, items definitely and what was the other thing oh yes all of the what you're saying about black fame after death i mm. think perhaps sometimes that's because uh if you're dead, you're not talking back, or you're not, mm. you know, it's very easy to mould someone's story after they've passed away, especially yeah. if it's a black person, you they're able to mm. write the story in the way that you want to, rather yeah. than when they're alive, and they might be being quite outspoken. Right, mm. yeah, all these ideas about, like, acceptable blackness, or, like, this kind of blackness that everyone should attain to, mm. yeah. It's really, yeah, it raises so many, like, in question, important questions um, to look back on. Cool. So now we're going to have a little excerpt from Shotgun Seasters. Yes. Yeah. In this new millennium that we are now living in, I think it is important to try and imagine a world where people love themselves and one another, not because of how much money they make, but because they are simply humans deserving of love. 
I want to live in a world and a country where things like food, education and beauty are free and available for everyone to have and enjoy. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Those, that's the goal. That's the goal, <laughs> Sometimes right? Sometimes it feels like we're moving further away from it. But... Is it too much to ask for? <laughs> yeah, no, we're definitely moving in the other direction. Yeah. But... but what's quite nice is that I've seen a lot of people talking about how, um, you know, change needs to come from the grassroots now. And to... it will. I really do believe that it will. It's just time and organising, and we'll get that. I mean, I feel like if things keep heading in the way they are, it's not sustainable. Mm. And so, like, inevitably, change will have to come. Yeah. Hopefully. Um, and then the other part, um, the other... Four words. <laughs> the other um, item from the collection that I wanted to talk about was this um, magazine-slash-journal called Revelation from 2000. They call it the Expressive Multicultural Arts Guide. Um, so it features interviews from people such as Sadie Smith and Trevor Nelson, um, as well as experts and artists like Sonia Boyce, Eddie Chambers, wow. David Adjay. Um, and it focuses on several um, art forms like art and design, music, literature, spoken word, film, fashion, you name it, um, specifically highlighting work from um, black creatives. And the reason why I picked this to speak about was because um, my uncle was one of the editors on it and oh, no. um, he was so surprised and proud to find out that this was actually an Innovis collection um, because I think, I mean, even though it was written in 2000, I just don't think he ever thought that like an institution would hold something like this and I think he thought loads of people had forgotten about that work um, and I just remember him feeling really like recognised and seen and for me that's what Innova really represents. It's about um, preserving a cultural history that is still prevalent today but has often been overlooked and it's about holding on to how important that is. And so like to see that within my family, like to see that recognition within like my personal like intimate sphere was so like I know it was just such a special feeling. Like I remember him saying, "Take a photo of it oh. for me," because like I don't know. I just think he didn't think that an institution like this would would have it in their collection, but of course they would because this is exactly what Innova is yeah, about. Yeah, that is incredible. Yeah. I've, ne I've never actually heard of. A I haven't either. Yeah, and it it sounds. I mean, I'm like just looking at the cover. So. Yeah, and they actually mentioned Innova in it, which is really lovely as well. Really? Like really, yeah. Oh, if you wow. go onto like the first. Yeah, so this is my uncle here. Oh. But then, yeah, so it talks about, like, um, like the the continued progress of Innova um, with their um, exhibition that was going on at the time and, like, how places like that are really important in continuing that, like, cultural preservation. So, for me, that was just, A, like, so lovely to see, like, my uncle's reaction, but B, like, this is completely, like, this magazine is a in response to like the legacy that Innova has created but also like really like showcasing black creative work which yeah. can't get better than that can this you? This is such a time as well because you've got I mean that's yeah. like Trevor Nelson you've got Sonia Boyce saying I mean, but look who is, at that. Who's else on the cover I don't recognize the last person. It oh, might apologies. be Will Johnson I'm not sure mm. but isn't it just so like iconic yeah that's really iconic yeah. it feels like a real time capsule it of does. that time completely like the <laughs> 2000s i would have been like two then 
but like yeah. it's just such a visceral like yeah really important especially and these so. are such important people because i mean yeah. i still listen to trevor nelson all mm. the time read Zadie smith sonny right? Boyce is i mean amazing. On. <laughs> yeah know, these are our cultural figures that we've grown up absolutely. with absolutely um, like yeah it's so important and it's like any black person who loves the arts will look at that and like completely resonate with it mm. So I, I had to discuss it. I'm so glad you brought it in because, as I say, never heard of it before and it just seems really yeah. a very important. I think they might have only done a few issues. Mm. So I, I don't know. But yeah, it's just really lovely to see it in the collection. You should bring it back. Tell yeah. your uncle. I know. <laughs> bring it back. Bring it back. <laughs> we want more. We need it today. So, moving on from that. Um, how has your perception of the collection here at the library Ooh. changed as you've been volunteering? It's just broadened so much. Like, I thought I had a really good understanding of it before, but even now, like, it's grown so much. Like, I've had time to just sit with the collection and delve through it. And what's really great is that the essays collection has been really great to use for, like, my uni, um, my course at uni. And I think it's just really emphasised how essential this place is mm. um, and I'm really excited to see like what's to come yeah yeah that's great yeah. yeah I think it's thanks for mentioning that, actually the essay collection yeah. I feel like for those who have never been to the library I feel like it's kind of split into three big categories so you've kind of got our like art catalogues mm. and all that sort of stuff you have the journals and then there's the essays and I think yeah. The essays are so great because it's all kind of stuff around like cultural theory and mm. it's not necessarily all intimately collected with art so if you are looking for things that are a bit broader it can be found in yeah. the essays and also in the journals as well yeah what's so nice is a lot of the exhibition catalogues so many of like the main overarching themes from them you can like go to like the essay part and like really home in, mm. which is really nice. Like they completely link together, which is, yeah, it's just so like all encompassing. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about your work with other organisations? Because mm. uh, I know you've been working with the Feminist Library and with Mother Tongues. Yeah, so I think it might have been a bit over a year ago, I started volunteering at the Feminist Library in their collections group. Um, and I helped create a catalogue for their zine collection because I didn't have one. Um, so all the zines were like in a box and nobody could really access them, which was such a shame. And the feminist library at that point were preparing to move locations to Peckham. So I helped create a catalogue and use their already existing um, classification system to, um, yeah, to input all the zines into that collection so that people actually knew what was in the collection because before then it was quite hard to know what was in the in the collection and what wasn't and so yeah that's how I started volunteering at the feminist library and then I came to Innova to start working here but then I've also been working with Mother Tongues Collective which um so Mother Tongues is an interdisciplinary collective which works on diversifying collections through DIY translation and language. So we've done um, workshops at archives such as Mayday Rooms um, and 56A Archive to look at decolonial and queer ways of exploring and interpreting um, archives. 
but also the power structures that work within them. So looking and questioning about who gets whose work or whose words um, get to be preserved in archives and like who makes those choices. Um, we've also hosted translation parties and Rizzo printing workshops with archive materials um, at DOI Space for London. Um, and our most recent project was a collaboration with artist Samra Mayanja on her performance Tear Tongues, which is a reflection and a remaking of her previous performance Bad Ugandan. And in that performance, Samra navigates themes of individual and collective loss of one's mother tongue, as well as the conflict between assimilation and one's authentic cultural um, self, which I think a lot of like second generation immigrants will really understand that conflict of like assimilate and like survive or really embrace your natural like your authentic cultural self and then so she did her reflection and then after that we had like a collective listening party to songs that um were really significant to Samra which was really lovely to just like facilitate like a collective learning environment so translation parties yeah that sounds really fun yeah <laughs> I, mean, I have to say I only speak English so I'd be useless same. I, so I only speak English as well, but um, there are two other members of Mother Tongues. So one is, she's Bolivian, so she speaks Spanish, and then the other is Cypriot, so she speaks, yeah. Um, and so they're really incredible, because, like, being, like, having, yeah, multiple languages, they're really able to, like, see politics behind translation and how that works whereas I'm just in the corner with like Google Translate like <laughs> knowing this is not correct but I'm going to give it a go yeah. but even I think just despite the fact that I can only speak English I often think about like how Samra says the loss of the mother tongue and like thinking about like my ancestors mm. and what language would they have spoken um, it's really interesting to like think about yeah about ancestry through language mm. and through a sense of loss as well because we often think about losing like cultural heritage but like language is such a big part of that as well and the ways in which you express like your your love language or like the the close relations you have with people like language is so visceral and so like intimate in terms of that and a lot of the workshops that we do something that we kind of keep coming back to is that through English there is a sense of loss and this sense of being unable to really to really like be able to vocalize mm. some of the emotions that you feel sometimes there's a sense that English is just too restricting and can't really comprehend like the spirituality that comes with like your ancestral history so that is something that I'm really interested in, is like looking at loss through language or a lack of language. Definitely, that's, I think, especially being from the Caribbean, or having ancestry mm. in the Caribbean, it's, it's quite interesting because I, I don't know what language my ancestors would have spoken mm. because they were taken to the Caribbean and then, yeah. you know, spoke English. So mm. what was the language that was before that? That's a really interesting exactly. question. Where in the explore. Caribbean are your family from? Barbados. Ah, I'm from St. Kitts. Yeah, it's really interesting and sad, um, but like it's really nice to look at that through the arts. It's quite comforting to be able to 
to take all of that and like look at it through an artistic lens, I don't know, it just feels less like heavy mm. and like messy and complicated. Definitely, definitely. Mm. Finally, well not finally, penultimate <laughs> question. <laughs> so if listeners, listeners want to learn more about what we've discussed, do you have any recommendations of where they could find information about zines or translation? Yeah. Are you discuss so many things? Yeah. Uh, you know, naughty's Britain. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I'll first and foremost say, if you want to find out more about zines, come to the Stuart Hall <laughs> Library. We have so many zines and we're always adding to the collection. So it's always growing. So final question. Uh, what are your plans for the future? Are there any projects that we should be looking out for? Um, trying to complete my degree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I mean, I'm only in my first year at the moment, but future plans definitely to, yes, um, finish my degree, hopefully. I'm currently looking into the prospect of trying to do some more work with other archives as well. I'm really interested in the George Padmore mm. um, archives in Finsbury Park. Um, and looking into the history of like the Black Power movement specifically in North London because that's like where I'm from and I'd love to learn a bit more about that. So I probably want to look into that, but we'll see. Mm, we'll see. Yeah, George know. Padmore has come up on this podcast oh, before actually. Someone so great, yeah. And yeah. really near to where I live, so I feel like it'd be this week's chat. As ever, thanks so much to my guest Kaya Birchskerritt for joining me, to Sheba Manika for providing the music, and to you for listening. Listening back to this episode, I was reminded just how much has changed as I sat down with Kaya in the Stuart Hall Library. I can't wait for the day we'll be back in the library, but until then, if you do want to learn more about our zine collection, do check out our online catalogue. And join me in a few weeks' time when I'll be chatting with Rashi Rajguru, who's doing fantastic work with our audiovisual collection. I'm